Section 8 of The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2, by Charles E. Flandreau. Section 8. The Pony Express. As Western settlement progressed after the purchase of the Louisiana Territory from France in 1803, it gradually extended up the west side of the Mississippi until the state of Missouri was admitted into the Union in 1820, which was followed by the states of Iowa and Minnesota along the line of the Mississippi and Kansas and Nebraska on the Missouri. The Mexican War occurred in 1846, and as one of its fruits, California was ceded to the United States and was admitted to the Union in 1850. The territory which now composes the states of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho was finally determined to belong to our country by the Treaty with Great Britain, which was signed July 17, 1846 fixing the boundary line between us and the British possessions at the 49th parallel of North Latitude. These extreme western acquisitions gave us an immense coastline on the Pacific Ocean, leaving a stretch of country between our Pacific and central possessions on the Missouri of considerably over 2,000 miles in extent which was uninhabited by whites, and composed the hunting grounds of many savage tribes of Indians, and the pasture ranges of countless herds of buffalo. This vast area of country was practically unknown and unexplored, although it had been crossed by the expeditions of Lewis and Clark in 1805 to 1806, John Jacob Astor in 1811, Captain Bonneville in 1832, Marcus Whitman in 1836, and John C. Fremont in 1843, to which sources of information may be added the prejudiced reports of the Hudson Bay Company. When California was ceded to us by Mexico, very little was thought of it as an acquisition to our possessions. It was looked upon as a country out of which a small trade in hides and tallow might grow, but nothing more. I have heard it denounced on the floor of the House of Representatives in Washington by some of the wisest statesmen of the day as a bear garden, unfit for the use of civilized man. But prophets usually make bad work of matters about which they know absolutely nothing, which was the case with California in 1848. However, adventurous spirits soon found their way there, as they have always done in Western America and in 1848 or 1849, gold was found accidentally by Captain Sutter in digging a mill race on his ranch, which discovery at once settled the status and fortunes of California. The news soon reached the States and spread like a prairie fire on a windy day. All the subsequent gold excitements of Fraser River, down to and including the Klondike, have been insignificant in comparison. I was in New York at the time, and used to sit on the East River wharves and see the ships sailing away for distant California with an insatiable boyish longing to join in the procession. 
There was no way of reaching the Promised Land except by a voyage around Cape Horn or an overland trip from western Missouri across the Great American Desert, the Rocky, and the Sierra Nevada ranges of mountains, either of which routes necessitated a weary and dangerous trip of nine months' duration. The usual plan adopted in the East was to form a company of about 100 or more men, calculate the probable expense to each and divide it, purchase an old whaling ship, fit her up with bunks and cooking appliances, and get an outfit and sail. Of course, there was nothing involved in the enterprise but the departure, the voyage, and the arrival at San Francisco. No steamer had ever crossed the ocean at this time, and all navigation was done in sailing ships. So great was the rush that a scarcity of ships was soon felt. I remember distinctly on one occasion when an old played-out vessel, purchased by a party which proposed to take out a printing press and start the first newspaper, was seized by the maritime authorities and condemned as unseaworthy just as she was leaving port. The next morning she was gone, and made one of the quickest and most successful voyages of the emigration. It is a curious fact that, out of all the ships that enlisted in this hazardous enterprise, not one was lost or seriously damaged. The overland route involved more dangers and hardships than the one by sea. Many people died on the way from exhaustion and disease, and many were killed by the Indians. But the emigration never ceased or even lessened from these reasons. I have followed the trails made by these emigrants in the Sierra Nevadas, and it seemed almost impossible that animals could have climbed the precipitous mountain slopes they encountered. These hardships, however, did not go unrewarded because to enjoy the distinction of being a 49er was ever afterwards a badge of nobility on the Pacific coast. It was not long, under this vast influx of immigration, before California became a well-settled state, and its business relations with the rest of the country, or as it was then called, the states, became very extensive and important and the difficulty of intercommunication was seriously felt. There were no telegraphs and no railroads, and no way for businessmen to correspond with each other except across a continent on wheels or around a continent by sea. What was to be done? It did not take the genius of American enterprise long to solve the problem. The overland immigration and its incidents had developed a class of men skilled in horsemanship, Indian fighting, and all the accomplishments that attend the latter, such as courage, wary intelligence, and a peculiar sagacity in trailing and scouting, only learned by intercourse with wild animals and wild men. Such men, for instance, as Colonel William Cody, now celebrated as Buffalo Bill, and Robert Haslam, distinguished as Pony Bob, are its best representatives. This class of men much resembled the Rough Riders of today, and could be relied upon for any enterprise that involved adventure, courage, and endurance. At the same time, the country was not lacking in a higher degree of intellect which could conceive a project that would call into play the utmost ability of this class of men.
California had been, and I think was in 1860, represented in the Senate of the United States by Senator Gwynne, who was associated with Alexander Majors and Daniel E. Phelps in transportation matters. They conceived the project of reducing the time between the Pacific Coast and the States by the establishment of an express from St. Joseph on the Missouri River to Sacramento in California, a distance of about 2,000 miles, which was to carry special business mails together with light and valuable express matter by means of ponies ridden by young men rapidly for short distances between the two points. Of course, this scheme involved an immense expenditure for stations all along the route, horses and men to ride them, and all other elements that would necessarily enter into the scheme. The matter was discussed fully at both ends of the route, and found many advocates and much opposition. The most experienced plainsmen and mountaineers pronounced it impracticable on account of the dangers to be met with and the opinion was expressed that no package risked on this line would ever reach its destination, and that all the riders would be murdered before a test could be made. Sense and experience seem to uphold these views. It must be remembered that the whole distance was a wilderness of desert and mountain ranges, little known, and infested with the most savage Indian tribes on the continent the relations of which with the whites were either unsettled or hostile. But, nothing daunted, the projectors decided to carry out their design, win or lose. They purchased 600 Texas Broncos, built all the necessary stations, employed all the men required to operate and defend them, and secured 75 riders from the adventurous men found on the borders. The wages paid the riders were from $125 to $150 a month with rations, and singular as it may seem to people of today, these positions were much sought for. Danger among this class of men has an irresistible fascination, and writing about it recalls an incident which verifies the assertion fully. When I lived in Carson City, Nevada, the office of sheriff of Ormsby County in which Carson was situated, was the most coveted position in the gift of the people, and it was well known that there never was an incumbent of it who had not died in his boots. The whole arrangement was perfected with western rapidity, and the first pony started from St. Joseph in Missouri on the third day of April, 1860. On the same day and hour, the western pony started from Sacramento in California. The distance between the stations was about 40 miles, and was ridden in the shortest time possible. Two minutes were allowed for refreshments and change of horses. Each rider carried about 10 pounds, and the freight charged for the full distance was $5 an ounce. The line was maintained successfully for about two years, without any interruption more serious than the occasional killing of a rider by the Indians when, in June 1862, the first transcontinental telegraph went into operation, and the Pony Express, being no longer profitable, yielded, as many other things have since, to the all-conquering invader, electricity. 
The first pony carried from the President of the United States a congratulatory message to the Governor of California. The best time ever made between the two extreme points was when the last message of President Buchanan reached Sacramento in eight and one-half days from Washington. It seems almost incredible that such time could have been made with animals, when we reflect that the first expedition sent out by Mr. Astor was 11 months in crossing the continent. The Pony Express was a success financially to its projectors, and satisfied the hungering of the people for news from points so distant from each other, and immensely facilitated the transaction of business. But, in my opinion, it was most important in demonstrating that the Western American never shrinks from encountering and overcoming obstacles that to most people would seem insurmountable. End of section 8. Recording by Andrea Kay.